Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, and as all of you know, I love New York. The program is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that New York neighborhood special? On other shows like tonight, we host a topic about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, who had some interesting history here. We've talked about the history of women activists and the suffrage movement. We've focused on African-American history in the city, going back to the time of the Dutch. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, the history of punk and opera. We've explored our public library systems. We have three, by the way, in this great city of ours. We visited some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. Yes, New York has fabulous bridges as well as everything else. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going to have one of our special shows, and we're going to cover a topic that's near and dear to me, also because I'm sort of personally involved with it. Almost every New Yorker um, is recently descended from people who came from across oceans and made this incredible city their home. And of course, I'm talking about the history of immigrants and immigration in the city, and also people who moved here who aren't technically immigrants because they moved from other parts of the United States. And we'll talk about that a little later as well. My first guest is a returning guest to Rediscovering New York. It's Dr. Robert Snyder. Dr. Snyder is the Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers in Newark. He is the author of Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights and the Promise of New York, More recently, Dr. Snyder co-authored All the Nations Under Heaven, Immigrants, Migrants, and the Making of New York, which not coincidentally we're going to be talking about tonight. He's a member of the New York Academy of History and in 2016 was a Fulbright lecturer in American Studies in South Korea. Dr. Snyder was appointed to the position of Manhattan Borough Historian by our great borough president, Gail Brewer, and that was 2019. Bob, a Rob, sorry, a healthy return to rediscovering New York. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Are you originally from New York? I was born in New York City. I was born in Royal Hospital in the Bronx, but my parents moved to the suburbs to Dumont, New Jersey, when I was only a year old, barely, in 1956. So I grew up in the suburbs with my eyes firmly fixed on the city of New York both because I had relatives here and because by the time I was about 15, I thought it would be a really great place to live. When did you first become interested in studying history? But not only studying it, because when you study, it, you just don't study it yourself. You illuminate it for other people and, and, and make it possible for them to discover it. To, to discover I history. always had an interest in history. I always wondered how we got where we are today. I always wondered about who lived where we live in earlier times. I got interested in the history of New York City, I would say, in the 1960s and 70s. It was a period of great tumult in the history of the city. And I had a lot of relatives still living in and around the city then. And I wanted to understand the relationship between the city's past and its present. 
And whenever I walked around in a place like Greenwich Village or Chinatown or Little Italy, the sense of previous generations was always very clear to me. And I wondered how people got there and how they came to live there. Rob, was there a particular process or journey that led you to becoming the, the Manhattan Borough Historian? I think I got the position because Borough President Gail Brewer heard me speak a few times. I spoke about Crossing Broadway, my book about Washington Heights in northern Manhattan and how generations of immigrants and migrants went there to make a home. I recall once that she was at a talk that I also gave in the southern part of Washington Heights about Audubon and the whole history of that southern part of the Heights that's the subject of a new book by Matthew Spady. And Altogether, I think I probably made a favorable impression about my passion for the city and particularly the borough of Manhattan. Well, that brings us to immigration. Um, it's not only what made the United States, but it, it's what made New York the wonderful and amazing place that it is. I would say, personally, that the best thing about New York is the different people from all over the world and from other parts of the country who came to this place and left their imprint on it as well as making it their home. Before we talk about immigration, I want to talk about the background of your book, All the Nations Under Heaven. How did you get involved in the project? I first met my co-author, Dave Reimers, in 1979 when I was in graduate school at NYU in history. And I was Dave's TA in a course on immigration history. And I was just inspired by his wealth of knowledge. He wrote the book, All the Nations Under Heaven, with another co-author, Fred Binder. That came out about 25 years ago. And recently, Dave suggested to me, immigration has really transformed the city since the 1980s and the 1990s, more than two decades since the first volume of that book came out. Why don't we do a new updated edition that'll show what immigration has done to the city and done for the city over the past two decades? Well, I'm holding the book right now. Um, All the Nations Under Heaven is not just a tome, but it really is a thorough work of history. What kinds of research did you conduct and what kinds of sources were you able to utilize for the book? You know, my co-author, Dave Reimers, is an authority on two big themes. One is the history of the demography of New York City. He's an expert in who came when and in what kind of numbers and what kind of conditions. He's also an expert on the regulation of immigration. And immigration in New York City, like every other city or state in the United States, is also controlled by federal authorities. So we started with those big questions, who came when and under what circumstances. And then I pushed out looking at novels, oral histories, books about immigration, photographs of immigrant communities, movies about life in immigrant communities. And altogether, I hope we painted a much richer picture than we would have in the past. Since New York was settled by the Dutch, we've been a city of immigrants. Uh, In the book, you write about how it's common to look at the 21st century as an age of globalization. But since its founding, that New York, or in the early days, New Amsterdam, had been shaped by global patterns of trade and immigration. We're going to be spending some time focusing on the large waves of immigration to New York that started in the 1840s. But I do want to ask you a question about immigration, which a lot of people um, may not really think about when they think of immigration. And that's starting with Dutch people who came here beginning in the 1620s. Was there anything about them or qualities they had that were different from typical Netherlanders at the time and why they came here? The people who settled New Amsterdam were really heterogeneous lots. Surely there were Dutch settlers, obviously, in the very beginning. But there were a couple other factors at work that made it a very diverse 
if small seaport city. One was that the Dutch had rather developed notions of tolerance, and part of that was religious, part of that was business-oriented. The Dutch thought that limiting your range of business partners because of bigotry was a bad business decision, so that there were some Dutch, Peter Stuyvesant among them, who didn't want to have a diverse New Amsterdam. He wanted to keep Jews out. But other Dutch thought that it was a bad idea to limit a range of business partners, and they also thought that there was a religious component to tolerance and accepting people of different faiths. Equally important in New Amsterdam, there was a shortage of labor. They needed people to work, and they accepted immigrants from all other parts of Europe and also brought enslaved Africans to the city to work in the city's labor force. Although I was really intrigued to read, you know, I was the question I was going to ask was originally the first immigrants were Dutch settlers, but actually, uh, after I started reading your book, I loved reading about uh, Juan Rodriguez, who was the actually he 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 settled here before before there was a New Amsterdam. Right, right, and, and probably on Governor's Island, and he is a street named after him in Upper Manhattan today. Dominicans point to him with great pride as the first immigrant, the first person to settle in New York City for wintering over here. His story is a fascinating one, even though we don't know all the details. But it's important to know that he was a biracial man of probably African and Spanish ancestry. And his arrival in New York City and his wintering over here reminds us that New York had great connections, not just across the Atlantic, but down to the Caribbean. Recently, immigration has pushed us to realize how many people from the Caribbean came to New York City. But that Caribbean connection is very old. It goes back to the 17th century in the time of Juan Rodriguez. Hmm. Was there anything different about the English who settled here compared with the Dutch? Uh, Some scholars argue that they were they were they were better for the Jews than the Dutch were. It's also true that New York for the English was a port in the empire and a port from which the British fought what we Americans sometimes call the French and Indian War. It made the city's economy very dependent on the imperial system. Privateers sailed out of New York City to raid French ships. And New York City, a big port by the time the British were thriving here in the middle of the 18th century, was closely tied into the British imperial system. When the imperial system was doing well, economic conditions were pretty good. When the imperial system faltered, the economy faltered with it. And the waves of immigrants who came to New York, Rob, one group that doesn't get much mention are French Huguenots um, who emigrated to the United States really in the late 17th century. Jack, you can see houses that are 300 years old that were built by Huguenots uh, in upstate New York and New Paltz particularly. They're really beautiful old stone houses. Um, did they? Did any settle in New York City or did they mostly go, go upstate? No, many settled here in New York City, but as Protestants in a largely Protestant city, and being here for a long time, they gradually settled in and merged with the native population, native at that point, meaning mostly British and Dutch settlers. They're an example of an early group that that in some ways acculturates and even assimilates to the point that they almost vanish from the from the pages of our history. It's worthwhile remembering them because it's important to remember that from its start, New York City attracted a diverse array of peoples. It's just that the diversity has always had different components. It changes over time. So if you're looking at the 17th century, you're looking at Walloons and after that Huguenots, but then in another period, it's going to be Irish and Germans. 
Diversity remains a big theme in New York, but my immigration and migration constantly bring on new casts of characters. Before we talk about the waves of immigrants who came from Europe in the in the 19th century, we can't speak about immigrants without mentioning forced immigration, specifically enslaved Africans who were brought here from the time of the Dutch. Yeah, and that and that slavery accelerated under the English. It tightened under the English. Under the Dutch, there was a kind of half freedom that Africans had. There was possibilities of petitioning for freedom. Africans worshipped in the Dutch Reformed Church. We don't know what would have happened if the Dutch remained in power in New Amsterdam because the English took over the city. We do know that under English rule, slavery tightened, as it did in many other colonies in the latter part of the 17th century into the 18th century. By the time you get to the early decades of the 18th century, 20% of the population of New York City is people of African descent. And there are two major rebellions of enslaved people against slavery in New York City. So it's not a small thing. Americans sometimes think of slavery as something that happened down south. It was very much a presence in New York City in the 18th century, for sure. I, um, in my show about uh, Flatbush uh, about a month ago, I was surprised to read that in the census of 1800, uh, that I think maybe 40% of uh, households in the town of Flatbush had at least one enslaved person living in them, mm-hmm. which when you think about it is, you mm-hmm. know, is remarkable. In Brooklyn, of all places, much yeah, beloved yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, um, when did the first big waves of immigrants start coming to New York and also Brooklyn? Because Brooklyn had been its own sure. city until the consolidation in 1898, but it was part of, of, sure. of the area. When did we start seeing big waves of immigrants? The big transforming surge is the arrival of Irish and German immigrants in the 1830s, 1840s, down to the 1850s. That's the immigration that takes a fairly modest-sized, if good-sized city of largely British and Dutch ancestry into a multi-ethnic, multi-religious metropolis of half a million people in just a matter of decades. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation in the first half of the show about immigration with the Manhattan Borough historian, Dr. Robert Snyder. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, and politics, all around what makes a great leader. 
the personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our episode on immigrants in New York City. My first guest is Manhattan Borough historian and author, Dr. Robert Snyder. Dr. Snyder has recently published this great book, All the Nations Under Heaven, together with, well, actually he wrote, he didn't publish it, Columbia University Press published it, uh, together with Frederick Binder and David Reimers. Um, Rob, we just talked about, uh, we started talking about the Irish and Germans who immigrated into New York uh, in the 1840s and 1850s. In the book, you talk about the rule of twos. Do you want to talk about that? Until fairly recently, and I think this is more an accident of history and demography, but it's still worth noting, immigrant and migrant groups tended to come in twos. In the middle of the 19th century, the groups of immigrants were largely Irish and German. By the early 20th century, they're largely Italian and Jewish. In the post-World War II years, they're largely African-American and Puerto Rican. And that creates its own dynamic in politics and culture. What we see now in New York City in recent decades is a hyper-diverse immigration in which no one or two groups dominate, but the major immigrant groups may be 10 in numbers, Dominicans, Chinese, Mexicans, people from the former Soviet Union, Ecuadorians, Colombians, Indians, Jamaicans. It's a much more heterogeneous immigration today than you found in previous times, and it has a fascinating consequences mm-hmm. culturally and politically. Well, the first two twos, um, Irish and German immigrants, um, the peoples from those countries came here for largely different reasons, didn't they? Yes. The big surge in Irish immigration comes because the Irish are fleeing the famine, the great hunger in the 1840s. And they come here basically to avoid starving to death in an economic cataclysm that's wrought by British policies in Ireland. Germans came because of economic dislocation and a degree of famine, but also for political reasons as well. And they brought a new kind of diversity to the city. Germans spoke German, obviously. Irish were largely Catholics, and some Germans were Catholic as well. And the end result was a city that was was once largely Protestant, now had a big sector of the population that was Roman Catholic. Lots of Protestants resented that. Lots of Protestants resented the Irish because they were poor. And that created conflict that spilled over into the streets and into politics as well. Were there any Irish uh, immigrants who became Americans who were part of the nativist movement at all, do you think, after they they were here for, for 15 or 20 years? Eventually, over a long period of time, that could happen. It particularly happened with regard to Chinese immigrants in the latter part of the 19th century. But in part, the Irish history in New York City from the middle of the 19th century down into the early 20th is a process of becoming more and more 
assimilated, acculturated into American life without abandoning Irishness. Yes, and historians will talk about how there's an element of racism, there's an element of prejudice that's part of that. And I think that's worth noting. But at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that Irish immigrants and German immigrants to a lesser extent are the first wave of immigrants to get hit with both nativism and economic hardship in the middle of a, a developing city. Mm. And I think that shaped their encounter with American life in all sorts of ways. Well, it was interesting. One characteristic of German immigrants is that most German immigrants were very literate when they came here. Um, and a lot of Irish were not, um, but Irish who were before the Germans. Well, after the, the wave of German immigration, we have the next twos. We have uh, 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 people from Southern and people from Eastern Europe. Yeah, those Southern and Eastern Europeans are varied, but two groups stand out above all. That's Jews and Italians as well. And it's Jews who are coming not just from the former German lands, but also from Russia, Poland, what we today think of as Eastern Europe. At the same time, you have a lot of Italians coming from not just Italy, but also Sicily. Although both groups maintain contact with relatives friends, political movements on the other side of the Atlantic. Italians in particular were noted for coming to America, coming to New York, working for a while with the goal of going back to Italy to make a, a home place there in Italy. And that created a kind of back and forth to their immigration that was defining and unsettled some New Yorkers who thought of them as kind of sinister birds of passage, but were perfectly happy to employ them excavating subways and buildings all over New York City. And is that one of the reasons why um, eventually Irish people had um, people from Irish descent had more power politically in the city than Italian immigrants ended up having in the first decade or two after they started arriving here? The Irish learned the game of politics partly because they brought something of the practice of politics with them from Ireland, habits of cohesion, habits of political combat habits of preserving their identity in the face of opposition, ideas about structure that came from the Roman Catholic Church, but also informal resistance organizations that fought British policies in all sorts of ways. They carried that into politics. And there's a great book that makes the point that every immigrant group that comes to America in the 19th century down to the early 20th century has to come to grips with the Irish example, whether to emulate it or to challenge it, it's important because the Irish sort of set the template that other people react to in one way or another. And certainly many Italian Americans thought they were squeezed out of political power by Irish Americans. Well, we had four big waves of immigration um, from the middle of the 19th century to around the First World War. We had Irish, Germans, Italians, and Eastern European Jews. And personally, actually, I hail from three of the four. <laughs> a little bit of Irish on my mother's Italian side. Um, and it's funny because my uh, uh, Italian uh, immigrant great-grandparents, they lived in Little Italy, mm -hmm. and my uh, Eastern European uh, 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 great-grandparents lived on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, in the second half of the show, we're going to talk to um, uh, our second guest about uh, an institution on the Lower East Side. But I want to move to, to, to war and the First and the Second World War. What What did New York see in terms of immigration before and after the First World War and also the Second? It was a very tumultuous, not more than tumultuous. It was a horrible time in Europe. Within a generation, they had two horrible conflagrations. What were the waves of immigration like to New York City as a result of those those wars? 
So World War I really put a halt to immigration across the Atlantic. So the immigrants who had been coming to New York City were suddenly frozen out during those wartime years. And instead, you got African-Americans coming up from the South looking for jobs in the growing war economy during the First World War. In the years right after World War I, there's a tremendous drive, which is painfully successful, to limit immigration from Southern Eastern Europe. There's a furious nativist reaction against Italian and Jewish immigrants, and the result is the United States Congress sets up immigration restrictions that will try to bring in only immigrants from Northern and Western Europe and freeze out the Italians and the Jews. Mm. That creates unintentionally, a degree of stability in those Irish and Jewish communities. They settle into the city, but at the same time, it puts Jewish immigrants in a terrible bind when the Nazis rise to power in the 1930s, because Jews can't get from Europe to America and New York City as the vice titans in Europe. Uh, In many cases, African-Americans and also a number of Puerto Ricans come to New York City in ever larger numbers in the interwar years. And that accelerates even bigger after World War II. In World War II, the big thing to note is New York City becomes an enormous economic powerhouse. And that has two effects. One, it draws in more African-Americans who, even though they find discrimination in New York City, see life in New York as better than life in the Deep South with violence and Jim Crow. At the same time, that migration to New York City of African-Americans that accelerates in World War II continues in the post-war years, along with a migration of Puerto Ricans as well. And I forgot the name of the act that was passed in 1924, but that wasn't the first time that the Congress sought to limit immigration, um, also on racial basis. We have that horrible Chinese Exclusion Exclusion Act, Act, 1881. I forgot the exact year, 1882. Um, But in 1965, Congress passed the Immigration and Nationality Act, which, among other things, repealed the horrible uh, uh, provisions of, of the Chinese Exclusion Act. And perhaps incredibly symbolically, and especially especially fittingly in our time without naming any names of current people in office, President Lyndon Johnson signed it into law at the Statue of Liberty. You know, he's recognized for some good things and some not great things in the Vietnam War, but he doesn't get a lot. He's he's generally known for the Civil Rights Act and for the Civil Rights Movement, but he, he he's not really, I think, given credit for having supported that law and having signed it at the base of the Statue of Liberty was really, you know, very, very symbolic. How did that impact immigration into New York, Rob? That opened up immigration to a whole new slew of countries. At the time, Johnson did see it as a great move that would right a a deep historic wrong in terms of immigration restriction. In fact, the, the new law that he signed did create some restrictions on immigrants from the Western Hemisphere who hadn't faced restrictions before. But the bottom line was it opened up immigration to a much more diverse cast of characters from many more different countries. It took some time for the full impact of that law to take place. But by the 70s and the 80s, you saw, for example, in neighborhoods like Washington Heights, the arrival of Dominican immigrants in transforming numbers. Dominicans, the largest group of immigrants to immigrate to the United States since the 1960s, to to immigrate to New York City, I'm sorry, to immigrate to New York City since the 1960s. And that created the preconditions for that very plural immigration that we see in New York City today. Well, Rob, our time together on this show is too short to talk about 
how each immigrant community individually impacted our culture, which is probably one of the biggest ways uh, that that immigrants have impacted us. Um, We can speak about the culture that dozens of different communities brought to the city. But in the short time we have left, I want to speak more generally about politics, which is one of my favorite subjects anyway. How did immigration, not just individual immigrant communities, but how did immigration as as um, as something that very profoundly impacted New York, how did it impact the politics of the city? I think it created a, a political system where it's accepted as normal that every ethnic group is going to fight its way into the political system, where ethnic factors are going to be used to appeal to people politically, and that there are going to be ins and outs based on the ethnic and racial alignment of the city. And people accept a fairly contentious kind of politics, and they see the need to create coalitions and defeat rivals as a fundamental part of the way politics is done. And coalitions and rivals have also been built not just by immigrant communities, but by migrant communities. And we see that with uh, uh, politics of African-Americans and also of Puerto Ricans who rose to prominence and very much not just impacted the system, but did a lot of great things for New York. All right. Well, Rob, we're out of time, unfortunately. It's always good to have you on Rediscovering New York. My first guest on this show about immigration has been Dr. Robert Snyder. Rob is the Manhattan Borough historian, and he's also a co-author of this great book, which I have to say is a real page turner, All the Nations Under Heaven. It's published by Columbia Columbia University Press, and you can get it on Amazon.com and probably in some bookstores in the city, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rob, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. We're, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with another Snyder, actually, about the history of a very important social institution in New York that worked and helped immigrants and also talk about the history of one in particular on the Lower East Side. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m. So tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. curious person always asking questions do you desire to be in the know then join me antonia host of so now you know thursdays at 5 p.m at talkradio.nyc listen in as i attempt to satisfy that curiosity i will be talking with amazing everyday people join the fun so now you know on thursdays at 5 p.m at talkradio.nyc you're listening to Talk Radio NYC, 
at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris Stevens. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook. It's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. <coughs> handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me at my team at 646 306 4761. Our second guest on this special show about immigration in New York is Ellen Snyder Grenier. She's a national award-winning curator and writer and principal of REW and Co. She directs research projects, develops museum exhibitions, and writes on urban history with a focus on social justice. The author of an award-winning history of Brooklyn, Snyder Grenier is a fellow of the New York Academy of History. Ellen has authored the book, The House on Henry Street, The Enduring Life of Lower East Side Settlement, which we're going to talk about tonight, published by NYU Press, and it was just published this year. Ellen, a very hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. I'm just delighted to be here, to be with you and my brother. Yes, it's great to have a brother and sister team, but I got to tell you, you're not the first siblings on the show. The first siblings I had on my show were actually the Belomo sisters, Tish and Snooky, who were the original <laughs> band members in Blondie. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> they were on my show on Punk, which, by the way, you can all hear on podcast. It's a, it was a great show. It was about a year ago. Um, history and the history of New York run in the family, Ellen, how did you become interested in New York history? Did it take the same trajectory as, as, as your brother or did you have different paths that led you to the same place? Or did you just sort of play history games when you were growing up? <laughs> um, well, I think what we, we both shared and I think we really got from our parents is um, a love of history and a real curiosity about the past. And I think that they really, um, helped me to see the magic in um, sort of walking back into other times and into trying to walk in the shoes of other people in the past and, and to understand just how enlightening and inspiring that could be. When did you begin your work and your career as a curator? 
Um, well, I attended graduate school at the Winterthur Program in American Material Culture. So I actually approached history from- Is that in Delaware or- uh... That's in Delaware. Okay. I've actually been to Winterthur, quite a, quite a place. Lovely. Yeah. Well, in a way that really sort of gave me a, um, you know, a different approach. I tend to really appreciate and look at and want to understand things that people make and what they say and mean about the people who made or use them. So um, that kind of um, love of material culture, and I also have a real love of design and English and history, um, really was a perfect path for me to become a curator. And specifically, I've worked a lot on creating museum exhibitions for um, history museums, historical sites, cultural institutions. And I think, um, you know, my first job was at the Brooklyn Historical Society as I uh, came out of graduate school. Um, I had this amazing opportunity to work in the greatest city in the world um, and in the borough of Brooklyn, which I know is also near and dear to your heart. And um, I was really fortunate to work for a director, David Kahn, who was really opening up the institution, making it much more inclusive. And we did exhibitions on Brooklyn communities, on the Latino communities, Chinese community, West Indian community. Um, we did a project on the uh, the community sadly created by AIDS. So we really um, created deep connections in the borough. And I and that that to me really sort of set me on my course to the kind of work I wanted to do. Mm. And continuing the work of the Historical Society, they just recently merged with the Bro the Brooklyn Public yes. Library. Yes. And now they're uh, either the, the Brooklyn Center for History or the Center for Brooklyn History. I, I should know the, the exact words for it, but uh, yeah, too. an amazing institution. When did you start REW and Company? Um, that was about 10 years ago. I have worked in museums. I had worked in museums for, for a long time. And um, I'd also done some consulting. And I realized that I really loved kind of meeting new people and getting to go into new worlds that I might not otherwise have a chance. And I decided to sort of take this leap and create um, Ruin Co. to help um, help museums, cultural institutions, historic sites um, tell their stories in ways that would help people see the world in new ways. And um, it, it's been it's been an amazing ride. It's a very creative business. You frequently see curators and, and people who do what you do who were employed by institutions full time. But, but you've developed that into um, a company that actually helps a number of institutions do it. You're not wedded to working with any one institution as an employee. Right. And um, what my work has allowed me to do is really, I, mean, I have some terrific clients. I get to work with very creative um, designers and the work has taken me across the country to Skagway, Alaska, to do an exhibition on the Klondike Gold Rush, to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, to work at the, um, at the National Memorial, the National Park Service site on an exhibit about Wilbur and Orville Wright. I've been to, you know, nearer to um, Philadelphia to um, work with the William Way LGBT Community Center about the reminder days, early, um, um, early activism just before Stonewall. And um, to New York City, I've worked on projects on Governor's Island in Brooklyn, um, and uh, most recently um, on Henry Street Settlement on the Lower East Side. 
You know, I've, I didn't know you worked on Kitty Hawk. I was there for the first time about a year and a half ago. And although and although it's not a big exhibition, the, I have to say the way it's laid out in different parts and with uh, uh, the uh, the center almost guiding you toward the field where those first flights took That's off. It's really, right? it's incredibly inspiring. For any yeah. of our listeners who haven't done it, it, it's absolutely worth 10 times the price of admission and you should do it. <laughs> I can't believe I was in my late 50s before I went to see it. Um, and that brings us to the Settlement House. Um, what is the Settlement House specifically, and how is it different from, from other social service organizations? Well, um, you know, Rob was talking about the rise, massive rise of immigration in the late 1800s um, of newcomers coming to um, New York City and other large cities from, from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe um, and, and seeking jobs in this rising industrial economy. Um, well, along with that, you know, we have people coming and they have incredible cultural resources and, um, but very few financial resources and often people end up in very impoverished neighborhoods. So settlement houses arose in the late 1800s as part of a, as part of a progressive era push to, um, to help newcomers navigate their new world. And they're called settlement houses because their workers settled in neighborhoods and lived next to and with the people that they wanted to serve. And that was very different than earlier charity workers who would go into an impoverished neighborhood and they would leave at the end of the day. But settlement house workers believed that they really needed to come to understand the people they lived with so that they could nimbly respond to their needs. So they would need to live with them and not just visit and leave at the end of a workday and exactly. go to some other part of town. Exactly. And the idea is, you know, you really to be immersed in the environment, as as you as you know, progressive era reformers believe that um, in what was really a switch from earlier generations where people thought that people um, where many people thought that those who were in poverty were in poverty because of their own moral failings. Um, progressive era reformers believed that the environment was to blame, that it had grown too fast. It was um, income disparity was too huge that um, that it it is it was what blamed um, it. And they blamed poverty on the environment. So it was a totally new way of, of thinking and looking, uh, thinking about and looking at poverty and people who were in poverty. Mm. When was the first settlement house and where was it? Um, so the first settlement house is founded in um, East London um, in 1884 by um, by the Barnetts, and um, you know they're they're responding to what they're seeing to the incredible poverty that they're seeing, and they believe that if if there's really to be long term change in how poverty is addressed, if we really were going to address its root causes, it could not be piecemeal. So they really wanted to. Um, be in the neighborhood and learn and 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 determine how they could actually create change on a larger level. When did settlement houses first become established across the Atlantic in the United States? So they come to the United States pretty quickly. Um, by 1891, there are six in the United States. And um, by 1910, there are 400 in the United States. So they grow rapidly. And that brings us to the famous Lillian Wald. Um, who was Lillian Wald? So in short, um, Lillian Wald was the public health nurse who founded Henry Street Settlement in 1893. 
on Manhattan's Lower East Side when she was only 26 years old, which I still cannot, uh, cannot get over. But I think she was really many things. She was a champion of immigrants. Um, she was a social reformer. She was a visionary. She was a CEO of a vast visiting nurse service, which would one day become the visiting nurse service of New York. Um, she was a humanitarian. She was someone who believed that in order to create a better world, we had to cross boundaries. Um, you know, I, I, I was made up a little list um, of things that we can thank Lillian Wald and Henry Street Settlement for. She spawned the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, the school nurse, special needs classes, free school lunches, uh, spawned the first municipally sponsored playground in New York City, helped found the U.S. Children's Bureau, was a co-founder of the NAAC, NAACP. And I think really also, um, moreover, she created a lasting blueprint for social justice that, um, that is still practiced today at Henry Street Settlement. Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Ellen Snyder Grenier, the author of The House on Henry Street. And we're going to talk more about that particular settlement house when we come back on the other side of the break. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. To rediscovering New York on our episode about immigration in New York. My second guest on this program is Ellen Snyder Grenier. She's the author of The House on Henry Street. It's a history about the Henry Street settlement. Um, Ellen, Lillian Wald founded the Henry Street settlement. Was there a particular 
event that inspired her to start a settlement house or was it a series of experiences that she had that that all of a sudden a light bulb went on and she said i have to i have to i have to found this 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 organization to serve people it's a great question so lillian wald um comes to new york city to um go to nursing school and then to start classes to become a doctor which would have been extremely unusual in her day and um, as a favor to a friend, she is teaching a homemaking class to immigrant women on the Lower East Side in uh, March of 1893. And one day, um, a little girl comes into the room and she grabs William Wald's hand and, and she asks her to come with her. And the two walk through the streets of the Lower East Side and Lillian Wald would later describe um, piles of garbage and dirt and sewage in the street and um, incredible crowding and she gets to the um, the little girl's home. It's a tenement. They climb up these mud cake stairs. And the little girl, it turns out, has brought Lillian Wall to her home to help her mother, who's lying on the bed, hemorrhaging, af- hemorrhaging after childbirth, um, abandoned by her doctor because she couldn't pay his fee. And she says, you know, this light went off in her head. She calls it her baptism of fire that walk through the squalid streets and then her arrival in this at this horrible scene makes her realize that she has to do something. So she's only 26 years old, but she um, decides she's going to quit medical school. She's I'm done with that. I'm done with the classroom. I'm coming to the Lower East Side. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to create change here. I'm going to um, help address not just the issues at hand, like this woman who's uh, in front of her, but but what but the environment and and the issues that brought her to that 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 sorry state. What was Wald's attitude about immigrants? Did she have any difference of opinion about immigrants as opposed to people in general? Anything about the any special circumstances that they may have have dealt with as uh, in a new place in a new home? Yeah. So um, William Wald is my hero. She um, she herself was the child of immigrants. She was the child of German Jewish immigrants who had come as part of an earlier um, wave of immigration. Um, and um, I actually I, I wrote down a quote I wanted to share um, in 1915 because I think uh, she really she really captures what what was on the minds of many people. Unfortunately, she says scorn of the immigrant is not new to our generation. Each nationality, as it becomes established in the new country, has considered the, has considered the next comers a danger. And she combated that. Um, she welcomed newcomers. She saw the strength and the diversity and the hard work and creativity that immigrants brought to this country. And she valued them. And she really worked hard to shine a light on, on the humanity of, of newcomers. And unlike some or many other settlements, um, she really, while she and the settlement helped newcomers navigate their new lives. Um, they did not try to make them, to Americanize them. Um, in fact, um, she celebrated their cultures. Um, Henry Street had the neighborhood um, playhouse where they mounted different programs. Some were in Hebrew. Um, they, were, they were plays that would have ha- resonated with the immigrant community. So she really did everything she could to, to embrace people and to, um, and to think of the world um, at large as sort of like one big family. In fact, the, um, the icon that she chose for the um, Selman's logo uh, was a Chinese character bow, which suggests brotherhood mm. and that brotherhood and sisterhood. That's what she was all about. 
Now, not to get into a political discussion, but I just had a thought, wouldn't it be great if there's a change in residency on January 20th next year in the White House uh, for them to put uh, a portrait of Lillian Wald somewhere prominently in the White House? It would be really, it would be really, really amazing to do that. Uh, yes. Uh, speak the difference about how people hold people who yes. come to this country and what they bring. Absolutely. Um, what services did the Henry Street Settlement first provide when it opened its doors in the 1890s? Um, so initially, um, from the very beginning, when uh, Lillian Wall came to the Lower East Side, it was about um, nursing care. So they, she and a colleague, Mary Brewster, and Mary Brewster eventually, uh, soon after, had to leave because she had was in poor health. They, if somebody had, you know, broken an arm, if somebody was having a baby, if somebody had gotten a scald or a burn, if a, if a baby was having issues, um, they would they would help them. And for for on a sliding scale of little or or no cost, um, and uh, but that wasn't just that wasn't all. In many ways, they were like social workers. So if somebody needed, um, you know, car fare to get uptown for a job interview, they would help them with that. If someone was um, um, the euphemism, euphemism, they would say, you know, a young girl in trouble. She she would they would help with that. Um, they might help people um, get food if they needed. Um, once they moved into the headquarters at, 18, at, at um, 265 Henry Street in 1895, they started doing um, classes and clubs and, and um, arts programs because Lillian Wall believed that it wasn't just about having enough to eat or, or a good place to a uh, safe place to live. It was about nourishing your soul. And everything they did really, um, all the clubs and the classes, it was a way to bring different people together around common concerns so they could learn about each other and in doing so break down barriers that were so unuseful to um, life in the city. And she really imagined a much more just society and, um, and, and a, a really, um, a really had a really wonderful vision of what New York city could be. Mm. The history of the Lower East Side, Allen, like most neighborhoods in the city is a history of evolving communities um, and immigrant communities have changed over the years. And the Lower East Side has certainly been host to immigrant communities. You know, one thing that uh, has been true about New York for at least 140 years, I remember I was at an open house once and there was a book on the table. I was doing it for another, uh, another agent and there was a book on the table, a, a coffee table book about Carnegie Hall and what, and what Manhattan was like in 1890. And something like 43 or 44% of people who lived in Manhattan um, were not born in the United States. And that has been enduringly true in New York City. Around 40% of the people who live in our great city were not even born in the United States. Um, how exact, and that's been, of course, true in the Lower East Side, and, and, and communities have changed. How has the Henry Street Settlement responded to its new neighbors and its new communities in the Lower East Side with, with its programming? Well, I mean, over the years, what has been so remarkable about Henry Street Settlement is its ability and desire to move with the times. And Lillian Walt said from the very beginning, we will continue our work, um, but we will do it by moving with the times, not with a fixed program. So that meant um, using this sort of blueprint for social justice that she had of, of, think, of seeing that everybody was whole and worthy, that poverty was a social issue, um, that neighbors really do matter. So guided by that blueprint, um, it then became the obvious to work with newcomers as they came to the neighborhood. And as earlier immigrants left and um, African-Americans, as, as Rob was talking about, um, arrived from the South and Puerto Ricans arrived in New York City, 
Um, these became their new neighbors and Henry Street embraced them just as they had embraced um, earlier generations of newcomers. And in, in big and serious ways, um, just for example, in the 1960s, um, when Henry Street celebrates, um, well, two, two ways, um, two good examples, 75th anniversary, they have a street fair. And, um, and the newsletter for Henry Street says, well, you know, we had um, a pageant like this in, uh, for the 20th anniversary, but now at our 75th anniversary, the sounds are Spanish and not Yiddish. And we are, but we are, we are proof that we can all be together and live together and work together. And Henry Street, um, over time, continues to respond to newcomers. When Chinese immigrants um, came into the neighborhood in the 1990s, then their programming reflected that. And today, um, Henry Street continues to be a place of neighbors helping neighbors, especially in this time of incredible need that is, um, I think the pandemic has really put a spotlight on. And um, today they're responding to their, their neighbors' needs, whether it's in health and education, or what's uh, especially critical now in um, food insecurity. They're supplying 12,000 meals a week to people in the neighborhood. So um, it's just, I really can't say, I, I, Henry Street is just an incredibly um, inspiring institution. And um, it's, it's, a, it's really a gift that they continue to be a neighbor on the Lower East Side. Mm. Well, even though times have changed, some things about the world and our city have not. Um, the overall vision of the Henry Street Settlement still embodies what Lillian Wald had when she started the Henry Street Settlement, and it's still serving the communities of the neighborhood, um, maybe even in ways that, that she didn't anticipate. Uh, Ellen Snyder Grenier, thank you so much for being a guest on the program. Ellen's book is The House on Henry Street. It's published by NYU Press, maybe a competitor to Columbia University Press, which has published the book of the first guest on the show. The books were published a year apart, by the way. So this is a great brother and sister team here, competing uh, universities, presses, uh, uh, competing books, but published about on the same subject. Um, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. That's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors tonight, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Broadcasting 24 hours a day.
Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc are you a small business trying to navigate the covid19 related employment laws hello i'm eric sauver employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show employment law today On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 